0: All right, well, I would invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs, and uh, I want to start with a couple of ideas that are probably the dominant position in scholarship that, in my view, could not be more wrong. Uh, so the, the two ideas that I think, if you were to, if you were to just uh, pick up sort of a mainstream uh, study of the book of Proverbs, or if you were to walk into a university lecture on Proverbs, the two ideas that you would probably almost immediately hear are, first, that Solomon, of course, did not write this book. And I think you should just disregard that opinion. We're, we'll look in just a moment at the evidence within the book itself. But the second idea is is farther reaching. And that's the idea that there is this divide between, say, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, and what they refer to as the wisdom literature. And so um, I know this, this class or this uh, session is referred to as the wisdom literature, and that's fine because I don't think the guys that arranged the class meant by wisdom literature what the scholars mean by wisdom literature. The scholars mean something different than what is taught in the law of Moses. And what I want to try to show you right out, right out of the gate here is that Solomon Is actually in the book of Proverbs living out and obeying the law of Moses and that as he does this he is presenting himself as a type of Israel's future good true righteous saving king okay so um, right out of the gate look at Proverbs chapter 1 verse 1 it reads the Proverbs of Solomon son of David king of Israel and those scholars who are saying, "nah" uh to this, they're, they're telling you that this is a falsehood. And so you're just confronted with a choice. Do I believe the Bible, or do I believe these modern Western scholars who are telling me that the Bible is not true? And I would urge you to believe the Bible. Believe the primary source data. Um, they refer to themselves as historical critical scholars. I think this is not a historical position to reject Solomonic authorship, and I think it's not a position that reflects critical thinking, because... Uh, if you think critically about this, there's a community of people who have received this as the word of God. And, and what these modern scholars are telling you is that those people couldn't tell that this was forged or, that, or perhaps that those people were being intentionally misleading in, in what they taught. And I just don't think either of those, those positions can be accepted. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Well, that immediately raises a problem for us. Because Solomon, as we know, did not live in accordance with, with what this book teaches. He, he, had, he multiplied wives, uh, he multiplied his wealth, and he multiplied horses. He did all the things that Deuteronomy 17 says a king should not do. So how are we to read this book? Well, I think that what we're to do is we're to look at it and say, um, this book represents Solomon's confession of the truth and his statement of repentance. So I think that Solomon repented of the ways that he had uh, disobeyed the law and then that he brought his life into line and his teaching into line with the Scriptures and and repented of all of those, those things that we read about. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. If you would, put a finger here in Proverbs and look with me back at Deuteronomy chapter 17. And this will inform for us what is happening in the book of Proverbs. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, as Moses is giving instructions about the different kinds of leaders the people of Israel will have, he he says in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And just as a side note here, you remember at the birth of Solomon in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when, Bathsheba, when David went into Bathsheba again after the first child had died and she conceived and bore a son. And the, the, Lord sent, um, the, Lord, it's, the text tells us the Lord loves him and he named him Jedidiah. Uh, which means beloved of the Lord. And and I think that that is the biblical author's indication that the Lord has chosen Solomon as the, the one who would succeed David, the king who would come after David. Whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn, return that way again. And if you think about it for a moment, um, if you think about what horses represent, uh, represents military might, represents power. And so in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is saying, uh, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And that's what this text is teaching. The king of Israel is not to acquire many horses for himself because he is to trust the Lord in battle. And then verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. And this is almost like Moses prophesying of the very thing that we read in First Kings 11 that Solomon would multiply these wives and again if you think about it the reason a king in the ancient Near East might multiply wives would be to ensure for himself a male heir and then to, to forge all kinds of alliances with neighboring peoples by marrying daughters and sons to neighboring uh, princes and princesses but, but the king of Israel is to trust the Lord for a male heir and for peace with his neighbors and then nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold verse 18 when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this Torah the word to- law there is this Hebrew word Torah which means teaching He shall write for himself a copy of this Torah approved by the Levitical priests, which means he's not supposed to leave out the parts he doesn't like and then act like they're not there. The Levitical priests are to check his work and make sure he got it all in. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. So you start adding these things up. There are three things he's not supposed to do and one thing he's supposed to do. He's not to to multiply horses, wives, and, and, and silver and gold. The one thing he is to do is to keep the Bible with him all the days of his life and, and copy it in his own hand and know it that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And I think that if I were to ask you what's the most prominent idea in the book of Proverbs, you would immediately say the fear of the Lord. So, so the Bible, the Torah, is what teaches the fear of the Lord And I'm going to argue here this morning that what Solomon is doing in Proverbs is teaching the Bible. Solomon is doing what what good teachers do. He's taking his tradition, he's reformulating it in memorable ways, and then he's presenting it to his people so that they can live it out. So he's to... um, Copy it in his own hand. It's to be approved by the Levitical priests. He shall keep it with them. He shall read in it all the days of his life that he may fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. And then look at that last clause in Deuteronomy 17. So that he may continue long in his kingdom. In other words... So that he'll have a long and blessed life, enjoying the blessings of God's covenant as he walks with God. That's the the idea. Now look back with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, after the Shema in 6.4. Actually, right before the Shema in 6.4, Moses says uh, to the people of Israel... He says in verse 2 that you may fear the Lord your God. So there Deuteronomy is clearly teaching the fear of the Lord. You and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. So the, the Bible itself, Deuteronomy itself is saying this book is to teach you the fear of the Lord so that you can have a long life. A couple of winters ago... Uh, Winter, Christmas of 2017, uh, turn of the year into 2018, my family and I, we went up to Custer, South Dakota, which is right near Mount Rushmore, and we went to this frozen lake. And I mean, this, this lake was so frozen that you could drive automobiles. It's, it's, it's frozen all the way to the bottom. And it's, it's my friend who, who took me and my family and his family. We were all out there on this frozen lake together. We climbed up on this rock that's actually in one of the National Treasure movies. They make it look like it's right next to Mount Rushmore, but it's actually a long way from it. But the actor in the movie, he sticks his hand in the rock and he pulls some lever and then a bunch of things go crazy. If you've seen the movie, I've only seen it once and don't really remember the details. But anyway, we get up on this rock and all the way across the the frozen lake, my little son Isaiah, who at the time, he's, he's nine years old now, at the time he was four, and he had what have to be... The worst snow boots in the world on his feet I mean every step he's fallen on his face. those things got no purchase, they had no traction and, and he 's slipping and sliding and he's, he, it was awful and so finally, I just grabbed his hand and just held onto his hand as we made our way across this ice and then we go up on this rock, and there are leaves and there's snow and there's ice and and I 'm kind of. I'm, I don't like heights at all. I mean, I, I'm like the guy in, in Ecclesiastes at the end when he starts getting old and he does not want to be off the ground very far. And the, there's this ledge that's like a 40 foot drop onto that unyielding concrete-like ice. And my son Isaiah and I'm looking and you know I'm seeing patches of leaves and ice and snow and grass and stuff. And and Isaiah had kind of slipped away from me and I just grabbed him and pulled him to myself. And my friend J.O. looked at me and he goes, yeah, if he goes over there, he dies. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge that the Lord has set this boundary in your life. And if you cross that boundary, you die. If you cross that boundary, you are going to fall and you are going to smash on the ice. That's what it's like to fear the Lord. It's to know I'm in a safe place right here in 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 the realm of obedience And if I transgress, if I cross that line, it is not going to be happy for me because the Lord is is just. He's good. He's just. He upholds his standards. Uh, So Deuteronomy chapter 6, I just want to draw your attention to um, 6.4 where you have the Shema. And, And this statement is the most distinctive idea that the people of Israel believe. All across the ancient world... All the other peoples of the ancient world believe in all kinds of gods. Lots of gods. Gods everywhere. And, and Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one living and true God, he says. And then there's not a therefore in the text, but there could be a therefore in the text. Because the fact that there's only one God makes it so, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because he's the only God, you are to be completely, entirely, exclusively devoted to him. And then it's almost like Moses is anticipating how the people are going to respond. They, they, they could be about to say, how do I get there, Moses? How do I make it so that with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, everything I am, I love the Lord? Look at what he says next. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So he wants the words that he's teaching on their hearts. Now, if the words are on their hearts, they are going to be thinking about the fact that in Genesis 1, God made the world. In Genesis 2, God created this glorious paradise, the Garden of Eden, for them to live in. And then in Genesis 3, God made a promise of redemption. Genesis 12, God made promises to Abraham. And those promises continue. And then Exodus, God redeemed them from Egypt, brought them out of slavery. And now he's given them this land that they are to live in. If if the words are on their hearts, they're thinking about what the Lord has done for them as their creator and their redeemer. And then look at the next words, verse 7. The ESV renders this, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You could translate, you shall teach them diligently. You shall repeat them constantly. You shall repeat them constantly to your children. So, so what Moses is doing is he's saying, here's your discipleship program. You repeat the words of the Bible over and over. And then once everybody's got them, then you start discussing them. And when do you do this? Well, you do this. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, so you're sitting around not doing anything, you're either repeating the words or discussing the words. You're, you're going from one place to another. You're repeating the words and then discussing the words. And when you lie down, last thing you do before you, you put the kids in bed and say goodnight and go away, you, you, you're repeating the words. And, discuss, and, first thing, and when you rise, first thing in the morning, this is what you're doing. What kind of person does this? The only kind of person that does this is the kind that knows that there is only one living and true God. The only kind of person that does this is the kind that has the words on his own heart. The only kind of person that does this is the kind that loves the Lord with everything that he is. And that's what Solomon is modeling in Israel. Israel is a patriarchal society, which means that, so my dad is here, he's the patriarch of our clan. He's, he's the... He's, he's the male. I'm the, I'm the firstborn son. Um, in, in ancient Israel, I would receive the quote-unquote lion's share of the inheritance uh, because it's not just my responsibility to care for Jake and Jed and Luke and Evie and Isaiah, my kids. It's also my responsibility to care for John and Nate and Cora and Anna and Levi and Hannah and all the rest, all my brothers and sisters' kids and all my brothers and sisters and their spouses, because I'm now the patriarch. So the reason I get half the inheritance is because everybody's going to be looking to me. And then, so so you've got a family, and then you've got like a a clan, and there's going to be a leading male in that clan, and then you've got a tribe, and there's going to be a patriarch of the tribe, and then you've got a nation, and the patriarch of the nation is the king. And this is why when David comes out of, the ca- out of the cave on one occasion, he says to Saul, my father, my father. And we know who David's father is. David's father is Jesse. And Saul's response is, is that you, David, my son? So this is a patriarchal society where the king is like the father of the nation. Patriarchy is not about Uh, coercion and abuse. It's about fathering people. It's about uh, caring for people, at least in the Bible. Some people may distort it or whatever. So Solomon in Proverbs is acting as the patriarch. He's acting as the father of the nation. And what he's doing is obeying both Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 6. He has internalized the law for himself. He's copied it in his own hand. He's kept it with him. He's learned it thoroughly, probably memorized the whole thing. And now he's obeying Deuteronomy 6, and he's repeating the words constantly, but he's creatively reformulated them to present them in a fresh and memorable and incisive and instructive way. So... Um, One more word about this first verse, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That word Proverbs, it's this Hebrew term uh, that that you pronounce Mishle, and and the key things are the, the M sound and then the SH sound, SH, and then the L sound, Mishle. I think that that word Mishle is related to a verb, Mashal, and you can hear in Mashal, the M sound, the SH sound, and the L sound, that verb means to reign, to reign as king. So I think even in the title of the book, you could almost say these are sayings of the king, sayings of the king. Now, you know, everybody pays attention to what President Biden says. And and imagine if you had as your king, the king of Israel, the wisest man, this side of the Lord Jesus, and, and if you're in ancient Israel, um, the Lord Jesus hasn't come on the scene yet, so the wisest man the world has ever seen. And okay, he's, he's blown it in some ways, but now he's issuing righteous teaching of the Scriptures that, that the community is recognizing to be the inspired Word of God. That's how this stuff winds up in the Bible. Well, you've got sayings of the king. This is going to be a book of enormous... Value. And I would just say we, we should study it simply because Solomon is the wisest si- guy this side, the, the smartest guy this side of the Lord Jesus. But in addition to that, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to be totally true and trustworthy. So let me just draw your attention to a few sort of um, markers in the book that, that help us to find our way around. And the way that these function, these function like landmarks do for us. Um, So if you ever go to a new city, I don't know about you, but what I like to do if I go to a new city is I like to actually look at a physical map. And I like to see the actual layout of where the roads are so that I will have a sort of geographical orientation and and have an idea of where I am as I make my way through. That's what we're about to do, a road map through Proverbs. So if you look over at chapter 10, verse 1... You find the next heading like the one at one one. So Proverbs one one, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and then ten one says the Proverbs of Solomon. And then if you start kind of comparing what you have in chapters one through nine to what you have in chapter ten and following, there's a there's a sort of different quality and a different um, nature to to what is communicated. It's it's kind of like going from one neighborhood into a different neighborhood. And and so the way things work in chapters one through nine is you'll have these extended blocks where, for instance, you have almost this this story that's told in chapter one, verses eight through 19. And it's kind of a self-contained unit. And then you'll have a whole string of connected ideas that, that really take up the whole of chapter 2. So you have these connected blocks of teaching, whereas starting in chapter 10, look at, look at 10.1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. These are contrasting statements, and it's just a self-contained line. And, and, and each bit of the line parallels what's in the second part of the line. Wise son, foolish son glad father, sorrow to his mother. You can see how these things are, are parallel and they're, and they're contrasting and this is the way it goes. Look at the next one, 10 th 10-2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Now those are related ideas because it's the foolish son who's gonna think that he can get treasure by wickedness and everything be happy. That's foolish. Um, and, and it's the wise son who's going to know that righteousness delivers from death. They're, they're related ideas, but at the same time, they're, they're not really developing a line of thought like you had in, in chapters 1 through 9. This is going to continue the way that uh, these, these lines work, really all the way through chapter 15. And then in chapters 16 through 21, there, there's, a, there's a slight shift in focus, and you start getting, you start getting statements that... Um, Would relate to the son of the king that the son of the king in particular should pay attention to, and 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 if you if you've read Proverbs, you know that all over the place Solomon is saying things like "my son." So, for instance, if you look back at chapter one verse eight, "hear my son your father's instruction." We'll come back to this, but what Solomon is doing is obeying Deuteronomy six. He's teaching the Torah to his son, Uh, and then look over at chapter twenty to verse 17, where we read, incline your ear, and hear, this is the ESV's rendering, the words of the wise. And and so you have a kind of introduction to the words of the wise, and then you get another one of those. Actually, before before we go to the next one, look at verse 20 there of, of Proverbs 22 where it says have i not written for you 30 sayings now your next heading is going to be at at 25 1 actually sorry i'm um, 2423 2423 says these also are sayings of the wise and between that first mention of the sayings of the wise, incline your hear and ear. The, hear the words of the wise in twenty two seventeen, and then that reference in twenty four twenty three. These also are sayings of the wise. You can find exactly thirty uh, thought units, and and these are actually if you if you have if you own an ESV study Bible and the ESV the normal ESV text may do it this way also, but they'll put a little space between from one thought unit to the next. So so that when he says there in. In 2220, have I not written for you 30 sayings? You can actually go through there and count out the 30 sayings that are in there. And then at one, we read, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So this tells us, you know, Solomon, he, comes, he becomes king in Israel in 971 B.C. Hezekiah becomes king... 7, 12, I can't remember exactly, 720, 712, somewhere in that region and reigns until like 680 BC. So the men of Hezekiah evidently in their, in their research into the, the annals of ancient Israel, they, come, they came across some more material that Solomon had produced and they collected it and copied it and then they, they brought it out and evidently people looked at that material and said, yeah, we need to put that in with the rest of what Solomon wrote. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. And then you have these remarkable two chapters at the end of the book. Chapter 30, look at 30 verse 1. It reads, the the words of Agur, son of Jacke, the oracle. And this is a mysterious um, title: We don't have a guy named Agur the son of Jacke, attested elsewhere in in the Old Testament, so we don't know who this guy is. He might even be a Gentile. And then thirty one Proverbs thirty one one says the words of King Lemuel. There is no King Lemuel uh, attested in the in the Old Testament. So if this is a an off, like if this is an authentic personal name, then um, this is some, gen- some non-Israelite king who has composed this material that either the men of Hezekiah or Solomon or someone, maybe someone like Ezra, has has come to and and recognized to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and then incorporated into um, the book of, that we refer to as Proverbs. Okay, so those are that's sort of the lay of the land. That's that's kind of uh, what we're looking at. Now, I want to take you back and look with you at Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, which is the introduction to the book, and um, maybe if you've got um, paper and a writing utensil, you can jot down my chiasm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose to you that Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 is chiastically structured, and um, a chiasm, the word chi, you've all seen, if you've, if you've driven around Fayetteville, you've seen uh, the Greek letter chi, which looks like an S, an X, and um, so, so it'll be easy to understand what a chiasm is. A chiasm is going to start with an idea that's related to the idea where the thing ends, and then the second idea is going to be related to the second and second to last idea. And then the third and third and third to last and so forth. And then there's going to be this central idea that is often the main point. That's how chiasms work. And what this does is it provides you with a memory palace. Have you ever heard of a memory palace? If you've read Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua 4, um, he, he, he describes what a memory palace is. It's, it's the way that... Like if, if I wanted to, well, let's just do it. Let's do a memory palace with this room, okay? So I'll build my chiasm into this room. So the center of my chiasm is going to be the center beam. And now, here, here's the function of a memory palace. With minimal effort, if you, if you really think about this and you commit yourself to, to getting this, you'll be able to rehearse what I'm about to tell you by just taking a little walk through the memory palace or through the architecture of this ceiling, if you'll, if you'll give it a little effort, you'll be able to remember what we're about to see by means of the memory palace. This is an ancient, mnemonic, or you know memory-serving uh, technique. So chiasms are a mnemonic device designed to help people memorize the material. They also function to create a kind of synergy. So that the first part and the last part start mutually informing one another and working together and creating creating more memory to, or more meaning together than they would standing alone and, and interpreted in isolation. They also explain, if you've ever sort of been reading along the Bible and, and you feel like you're you're reading about one thing, and then all of a sudden the author introduces some other, some crazy out-of-nowhere topic. And then and you're like, where did this come from? And then you keep reading and you're like. Well, here's another crazy topic. And then you keep reading and you get back to that crazy topic that you had over there. And then you, you switch back to the topic that you started with. Well, the author has structured his material chiastically. He, he's arranged his material so that these parts are interspersed. And, and so it creates synergy and, and builds meaning. It, it provides you with a, a mnemonic device to memorize the material. It also creates the, com- the, the sense of completion. You know, it's like once you've kind of made your way through the whole thing, you feel like everything that needs to be said has been said. Even if, like, I mean, I may be crazy, but I think the whole gospel of John is a chiasm. I think the whole gospel... Now, uh, John tells us at the end of his book, Jesus did so many things that if they were all written down, even the world itself would not contain everything that could be written. The world itself would not contain the books that could be written. Well, if you're John, how are you going to pick what goes in? I think what John did was he said, I'm going to make a big chiasm <laughs> and I'm going to slot my pieces in and that's what I'm picking and that's what I'm including and the rest of it, you know, I'll make this note at the end. There's too much. Not even the world would contain everything that could be written. I think that's, that's the way that John handled that. So it creates the sense of completion even though you haven't uh, treated something exhaustively. And then um, uh, the last thing it does is it, is it gives you literary beauty, It's awesome. It's genius. It's amazing. So look with me at Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Look at at chapter 1, verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction. So this is what Solomon is trying to give people. He's trying to help them to know wisdom and instruction. And, you know, earlier I was talking about how uh, scholars have erected this, this iron wall between Torah and wisdom literature. Well, Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 6, Moses says to Israel, you keep all the words of this law, that will be your wisdom in the sight of the nations. The nations will look at you and they will say, what a great and wise and understanding people to have law like this. Okay, so you could almost say, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand the Bible. Now look down at the end of verse 7. The last words of verse 7 say, fools despise, and then there are your two words again, wisdom and instruction. Now, in order to see chiasms, you really need to pay close attention to the very words of the text, and you need to pay close attention to where the words are placed, because they're going to be strategically placed. Look at at the first part of verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge. It's like Solomon is saying, your starting point is recognizing that if you go over that ledge, you die. You transgress these commandments and, and all manner of wrath and judgment is going to be unleashed upon you. So you need to fear the Lord. It's a good thing to fear the Lord. I know a lot of people, they don't like the word fear. They want to talk about reverence. They, they want to get away from fear. Listen, he's, he's fearful. He is fearful and we should regard him as such. And we should respect the boundaries, because, and we should fear to transgress the boundaries. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, look at the second part of verse 2 where it says, to understand words of insight. Now, I think what Solomon is doing is he's introducing the kinds of things that he's going to talk about. So he's going to talk about wisdom and instruction and he's also going to talk about words of insight, and he's distinguishing between these things. And, and now, at the end of, at, in, so the first part of the chiasm, let me, let me build it into the room here, um, so this, this sort of level ceiling on that side of, of, the, of the place, we'll make that um, Proverbs chapter 1, 2a, to, to know wisdom and instruction. And the corresponding flat ceiling on this side, we'll make that Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, this first sort of uh, section of ceiling leading up to that light right there, we're going to make that one 2 b to understand words of insight. And I would submit to you that there's a distinction to be drawn between wisdom and instruction and words of insight. There's a slight difference in meaning there. And I think he exposits words of insight in the corresponding section. So this this first slanted part up to that light right there is uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, To understand a proverb, a mishle, a kingly saying, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So I think the words of insight are the words of the wise and their riddles. A proverb and a saying. So he's, I think he's, he's sort of telling you what he means. And you can see how these two things are working together. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, before I saw this chiasm, I would read through this and I would be like, ah, oh, let me get to the good part. I mean, I didn't really appreciate Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 because I didn't understand how it was working and I, didn't, I couldn't figure out what it was trying to say and it felt like it was saying the same thing over and over again and blah, 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 let me get to something interesting here. But if you understand the literary structure, I think it starts to communicate to you. Verse 3, look at verse 3. Notice that word in verse 3, to receive instruction. Um, I know that there are people who have been teachers in the room. I know that there are coaches in the room. And I I know even even those of you who haven't taught or coached, you're going to know what it is for somebody to be teachable, for somebody to be coachable. What it means is for them to be receptive. You start talking and they lock in. They receive what you have to say. That's what Solomon is commending. He's saying, I am teaching you material that will put you in position to be teachable, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. That's what he's after. He wants people to understand these concepts that are so disputed in our culture even now. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity. The corresponding um, section in verse 5. So if we, if we were to take um, from that, that light and, and really I didn't space this well. So what I should do is I should, I should put the first one all the way up through that, those, those spotlights, uh, the middle column. And then from the middle column all the way up to the center beam. This is our next unit there that we've just read, in um, in verse three, and it's going to correspond to verse five. Which again, if we have our uh, uh, verse verse six going up to the middle column, verse five is going to take us from the middle column up to the center beam, and verse five reads, "Let the wise hear," which is kind of a way of saying, "Be coachable." Be teachable. If you're wise, Solomon is saying, you're going to listen to me. If you're wise, you're not going to say, oh, I understand everything already. That is not a posture of wisdom. Oh, I got this. I don't need your instruction. I don't need your insight, Mr. Smart Man. If you're wise, you're going to hear and increase in, and the ESV renders this word learning, but it's etymologically related to that word Receive. So you could translate this, let the wise hear and increase in receptivity. Be even more receptive. Be even more teachable. Okay, so um one, two, one, seven, um, one, two B, one five, one uh, one three, one six. That puts at the center beam verse four. So this is the center of the chiastic structure. And if we were to say to Solomon, what are you really trying to accomplish in this book? I think he would say, look at Proverbs 1.4. To give prudence to the simple. And in the book, you're going to read over and over again references to the simple. And the simple in the book, some of them, they hear. And they increase in learning. And they become wise. But then there are other simple who they don't see the trouble ahead and they go on and they suffer for it. So you've heard people talk, I'm sure, about the two ways teaching in Proverbs. Yeah, there's, there's a way that leads to life and there's the there's way that leads to, life, to, to, to death. And the simple person, is he's like, he's like my third born son. He's 14 years old. And, he, and he's not wise. He is simple in his thinking. And he needs to listen. He needs to be coachable. He needs to be teachable. And he needs to fear God and he needs to get on the path of life. That's what he needs to do. He needs to hear the warnings in this book addressed to the simple that he could go the way that leads to life or he could go the way that leads to death. And the simple, if they go on in their simplicity, they're going to suffer for it. That, that's what's being taught here. To give prudence to the simple. So it's almost like... Solomon is saying, hey Jim, I'm writing this book for your son and you need to be a Deuteronomy 6 man and you need to repeat these words constantly and then discuss their meaning with him. You need to follow the program to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Um, So um, the program of the book is to make wise men. You know, if... if." um, if you think about the Shema, hear o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love him, and these words that I command you today shall be on, upon your hearts, you could, you could almost say, what's going to come after that? What's going to come after we've only got one God and we're to love him and his words are to be upon our hearts? Is he going to say something about the military? Is he going to say something about... The, 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 the king? Is he going to say something about the economy? Surely these important topics are going to come on, the, on, the, on into the discussion, right? And these words that I command you today shall be upon your hearts, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. That's what he says next. Because if the parents will teach these words diligently to their children, everything, everything else I mentioned is going to get taken care of. The economy, the military, the politics, the next king... They're all going to be Bible-saturated people if the parents obey Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here in Proverbs, it's like Solomon is saying, I mean, you know, this is an anachronistic statement, but it's like he's saying, follow me as I anticipate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul says. And Solomon is saying, you want to know what the future king of Israel, the righteous guy is going to be like? He's going to be like the blessed man in Psalm 1. He's going to be like the... the The father in Deuteronomy 6, he's going to be the king with the Torah copied in his own hand in Deuteronomy 17. And I'm going to to model that for you here in the book of Proverbs. Okay, it is 7 a.m. I think it would be good to take a break break and stretch our legs. What time do we come back and what time do we conclude? We conclude at 7.45? So five minute break? Okay, great. 7.05, I'm going to start talking. Right. Let's come back together, <clears throat> and as you make your way back, I want to offer you a way to think about the book of Proverbs in the context of what we might call the Bible's big story. So, if we go all the way back to the beginning at creation, um, in we read in Genesis three that um, the Lord came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So in the garden of Eden, it was almost as though uh, man lived in the holy of holies, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, lived in the holy of holies in the presence of God. And then because of their transgression, because they disobeyed God's uh, prohibition and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were driven out of the garden, which was like them being driven out of the clean and holy realm of life into the unclean realm of the dead. So even though they're not physically dead, they're spiritually dead because they've been banished from the realm of life and they've been sent out into the unclean realm of the dead. And, and God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he is going to eventually overcome the one that, that brought sin and death into the world and thereby... Man will be restored to the presence of God. So you could almost say that the whole Bible is is this quest where where God is is working to bring about a situation where once again um, he fellowships with his people in the holy and clean realm of life. And the book of Proverbs, you, you could almost say that the book of Proverbs is trying to answer the question how do we get back into the Garden of Eden? How do we get back into the Garden of Eden? And for the first nine chapters, the the big thrust, the big idea. The, if if you sort of uh, analyze the the point of the different chapters, or, or, or yeah, of the different chapters of Proverbs one through nine, you, you're gonna you're gonna eventually narrow down to this. Listen to your mom and dad as they teach you the Bible. Listen to your mom and dad as they teach you the Bible. That will keep you from the wrong crowd. For, for in, This is mainly addressed to young men. That will keep you from the thugs. And it will keep you from the forbidden woman. And it will keep you from entering into uh, bad business deals. And it will in, in, implicitly, and we're about, I'm about to take you into this, it will, it will make you someone who enjoys the presence of God even in this fallen realm in anticipation of the realization of the restoration of people to God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. So I, I think that the book of Proverbs fits perfectly in the Bible's broader theology. And all these people that are like, how do you incorporate wisdom literature into biblical theology? I'm like, what's wrong with you? Aren't you reading the book? So, so look with me at, at Proverbs chapter 3 verse 1. My son, so again, Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Deuteronomy 17, uh, he's being the king who knows the Bible and he's teaching it to his sons. My son, do not forget my Torah is the word teaching. The word rendered Torah, teaching here is the word Torah. And, and I'll just, I do, I do not understand why this is the case but there are Old Testament scholars who write commentaries and write books and they will fight till their death to try to argue that the word Torah here is not a reference to the Torah of Moses. And again, I'm like, well, what other teaching do you think Israel is living on? What, what is wrong with you people? I mean, I just I, I don't want to be dismissive or rude or anything like that, but I do not understand why these people come to the conclusions that they do. I think it is so obvious. If you... If, if you don't have the Torah of Moses, there is no reason for what we're about to read. There is no rationale for everything that we're about to read apart from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where all this stuff comes from. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So in, uh, in Hebrew, there is no word for brain, they don't have a word for mind. And, and they're not thinking about the human person and the way it processes data the way that we do in our world. In Hebrew, the word that stands in for brain or mind is heart. And what that points to is the, the, the place from which your desires flow, the place where you process information, the place where you store your your. Memorized material, let your heart keep my commandments. Commandments is another Bible word, Deuteronomy word. Look at the book of Deuteronomy. find that word all over there. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Notice the, the, uh, the contrast in, in the parallelism. Do not forget. Well, what's the opposite of that? Let your heart keep my commandments. And then look at the promise in verse 2. It's the same promise we saw in Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. It's the same promise we saw in Deuteronomy 17, verse 20. For length of days and years of life and shalom they will add to you. What's gonna give you, what's gonna give you, son of Solomon, long life, shalom, which I think shalom is a way to, to speak of the enjoyment of communion with God and being right with with the world because you're 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 current with everybody and and you've paid all your debts and you've met your obligations and and you've served the people that you need to serve and everybody's happy with you walking with God's going to get you there walking with God in obedience to the scriptures length of days years of life peace they will add to you verse 3 now before i read verse 3 let me remind you of of uh, Exodus 33 and 34. I, I, to this day, I don't know who the lady was, and you know, even that's a little bit. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. But when I was a student at the University of Arkansas, some lady came and taught to the. We called it the BSU. Now I guess it's the BCM. Is that what it's called now? Yeah, they change. You know, they keep changing the names on me. A- anyway. Um, Some lady came and taught on Exodus 33 and 34. And I remember her talking about how Moses had been 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain with God. And then he gets an opportunity to ask for something. And what he says is, show me your glory. That that message had a really significant impact upon me. So Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, Moses, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. And then when he proclaims his name, what he's doing is is defining himself. He's telling Moses who he is, and he's describing his character for Moses. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the Lord's character, he, he, he tells us who he is. and. All of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, the Prohibitions, the the Boundaries, the Instructions... ...it's all sourced in the character of God. So if you don't have God, you don't have any basis for the instruction. And and we should be be attuned to the way that often unbelievers and, and people who are acting like the serpent in the garden what they're going to do is they're going to assume the righteous standards of God in order to attack the people of God. They're going to assume the righteous standards of God that are sourced in God's character to attack the Bible or even to attack God himself. And we should just be prepared to say to those people, where do you get your definition of right and wrong? How are you defining what goodness is? What, where, what's the source of your standard for evaluation? Because I think that the source comes from the Bible... Which is ultimately rooted in the character of God, but you're denying those realities. So I don't know how you know what goodness is. Look at the next words of verse three here. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. That those are those two things uh, abounding in steadfast love and truth. Deut- Deuteronomy, thir- uh, sorry, Exodus thirty four six. Let not steadfast love that's chesed and faithfulness that's emet. In other words, the character of God. Don't let the character of God forsake you. Well, how do I keep the character of God? Keep reading. Verse 3, bind them around your neck. We didn't keep reading in Deuteronomy 6, but in Deuteronomy 6, you know, he says that the instructions, you should bind them on your forehead, on your, on your, on your arm, and they should be as frontlets on your forehead. Now, the, the Jewish people, they will literally take straps of leather with little leather boxes, and they'll put scraps of paper with Bible verses on them, and they will wrap these straps of leather around their arms and strap them onto their heads. I think they're totally missing the point. That is not, I don't think that's what Moses is is commanding Israel to do. I think what he's saying is your actions should be clothed, characterized by the teaching of Scripture. And you put something as a frontlet on your forehead, what the result is you can't look at the world without seeing that. So, so your interpretive lens, we might say, the way that you look at the world is to be shaped, ground, informed, honed, sharpened by the Scriptures. The Scriptures are to be the way that you see the world. And now Solomon is using all that language. He says, bind them around your neck. Wrap, wrap the teaching. Write, look at that next phrase in verse 3. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Does that make you think of anything else in the Bible? Can anybody think of a passage that speaks of something like this? The law being written on the hearts of his people. Yeah. I mean, this is almost in anticipation of the new covenant, isn't it? I I think that 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 promise in Deuteronomy, um, in Jeremiah chapter 31, um, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, is really about making it so that God's people instinctively desire to do what God has commanded. So that when you come into a situation, you want to love your neighbor. You want to love God. That's, that's flowing out of your heart. That's the, and, and that's a result of the law being written on your heart. And that's what uh, Solomon is here calling for. And it's what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. So, verse 4, and that so is like a, you know, in this way or as a result. So you will find, now listen to these words and ask yourself, where do I have a phrase like this in the Bible? Where do I read about somebody who lived like this in the Bible? Proverbs 3 verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Yes, Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think that Luke is alluding to Proverbs chapter 3 verse 4. And I think that Luke is subtly communicating to his audience, Jesus was a son of God. Like, like the one that Proverbs is trying to create. And Jesus would become a man who is the ideal. He, he's, you know, the book of Proverbs, you read Proverbs, and, and then you think about Solomon, and you're like, man, he fell short. And then you think about Rehoboam, and you're like, oh, my goodness. You know, you know, you know who Rehoboam is, Solomon's son, who split the kingdom, and, and he... Um, He wouldn't listen to the wise counselors of his father. Instead, he listened to those foolish young men of his own age. And and the result was disastrous for the nation. And and I think that this is part of the point. You read read Proverbs and and it's like it's designed to make you think, when are we going to get a king like this? When are we going to have a man who hears all this instruction and embraces it and then lives it out? And then it's as though Luke says, here he is. Here he is. Verse 5. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Now, before I read this verse, um, I want to I tell you a little bit about a little bit of instruction in, in Deuteronomy 15. Maybe you're familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, in that passage, um, Moses uh, talks about the, the sabbatical year. And um, in, in Israel, they were to count sets of seven years. And um, one, of the, one of the pieces of instruction was that in the seventh year, so let, let's just kind of for this, ex, this little illustration assume that everybody in the room is an Israelite. And um, I want to assume that, that my, my friend over there, Stephen Martin, is, a, is a, a wise and God-fearing and prosperous and diligent, you know, he obeys Proverbs, and so his, his farm is awesome, He's not, he doesn't have the field of the sluggard. Um, everything about his life is prospering. And meanwhile, I'm the sluggard and my hedge is broken down and my life's a disaster and everything's a total mess. And and so in the instruction in Deuteronomy 15, I can come to see Stephen and say, I need a loan. And and the the way this works is when we get to the year of release, the seventh year, if I haven't paid back the loan, I don't owe him the money anymore. The loan is canceled. In the seventh year, so I can go to Stephen and say, "Now, well, you know, I'm going to be a little bit. I'm going to exaggerate this a little bit. Stephen, I need seventy-five thousand dollars to buy the top-of-the-line Ford F-150 to get my farm in shape." Now, I think Stephen has has the right to say, um, "Okay, Deuteronomy 15 tells me that I am not to close my hand against my poor neighbor because I see that the year of release is near, but." I'm also instructed to act in wisdom. We're not going to buy a $75,000 Ford. That's, that's, the, that's part of your problem. That's part of, the re, that's part of the reason that your life is a disaster. We're going to go find a $1,500 Ford F-150. But yeah, when the year of release comes, and if you don't have the money paid back, the debt's canceled. Now, that's going to create... And, and Moses knows it's going to create a temptation. He says in Deuteronomy 15, don't harden your heart against your poor brother. And then he tells them... If you give him the loan and then you cancel the debt, he says the Lord is going to bless you. That teaching makes no worldly financial sense. It doesn't compute. But And this is the point. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. It's like Solomon is saying, look, I know that you've read those parts of the Mosaic law that make you say, that doesn't make any sense. That looks like it's going to lead to penury, not blessing. And Solomon is like, I know. Trust the Lord. Trust, don't, don't lean on your understanding. Trust him. In all your ways, verse 6, acknowledge him and he will make, your, he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. To decide, I know better than the Bible, is to be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It's like he's saying, you will have the kind of psychological stability and peace from having obeyed the commandments that will enable you to sleep well and be restored. And you won't be tortured... By this knowledge that there was good that you knew you should do and you didn't do it. It will be healing to your flesh. Can you think of other passages in the Old Testament that speak this way? Anybody, anything come to mind for anybody? Psalm 19 is what I'm thinking of. The law of the Lord is perfect, um, reviving the soul. The, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Bible is good for us. And then look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. How do you honor the Lord with your wealth? You do what the law commands. You do what Moses taught you to do with it. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So he's saying you, you will you will experience financial blessing the, by following the Bible's seemingly wrong path to financial blessing. Because the Lord will, will bless you. That's what he's teaching. Now, um, a moment ago I said that the question is, how do you get back into the Garden of Eden? But, but think about the enticements that have already been used here. The entice- enticements that have been used include things like an appeal to favor and good success... And wealth, and honor, and blessing. What do, what do young men and young women want? They want all these things that we've just articulated. You can hear it in the music, even even in 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 secular music. They want they want stable relationships, and they're mourning the loss of them. They want wealth and prestige. They want to be able to walk into the room and people treat them as as a big important person. They they want this kind of influence and significance. And and Solomon is saying this is the pathway to it. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. And I I want you to send up your Bible awareness antennae. And I want you to ask yourself as I read these verses, is there another place? Now, let me remind you, this is Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And I know that the passage I'm about to read is quoted in Hebrews 3. That's not what I'm reaching for. I'm asking you to think of something prior to this passage that is going to use all of the terminology that we're about to read. And, and I'll try to emphasize the relevant words as we go through. So I'm, hope, I'm trying not to make this too easy. But at the same time, I'm trying to trigger your thinking so that, so that you come up with the passage I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting this alludes to. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Okay, this is Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And he's going to be addressing his son who's going to be king of Israel. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Any passages come to mind? Am I hearing? Well, not, not, not forward, backward. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, okay, yeah, yeah, it, that, that happens there. Yes, but I'm thinking narrative. Anybody, anybody thinking of 2 Samuel 7, 14? He will be a son to me. I, when, uh, I will raise up your seed after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will be a son to me, and I will be to him a father. And when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the strikes, the strokes of the sons of men. Um, I think that Solomon is alluding to the promise in 2 Samuel 7.14. And essentially, so what, what we've got there is a, a line of kings that's going to culminate in the king. And I think Solomon is alluding to this. And he's, he's telling his son how to respond to the Lord's discipline. And, and if we think also, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to keep reading right here. And I, and I want to I wanna ask you if the, the next words also provoke any thoughts of earlier biblical material. And I want to remind you that this is Solomon, the son of David. All right. Look at verse, verse 13. Blessed is the one. And I tried to read it the way we sometimes say the one I'm alluding to. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. What, do we have another passage in the Bible that opens like blessed is the Psalm 1, that's exactly right. I I think that there are many places in Proverbs where you have allusions to the Psalms. And there are two different Hebrew words for blessed. This is the word that is used in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. It's like Solomon is saying, I know you're excited about everything that money can do for you. The Bible can do more for you than money can do for you. Wisdom can do more for you than money can do for you. And her profit better than gold. Why do people want silver and gold? Well, they want to they enjoy fine things. They want to go on nice trips. They want to wear nice clothes. They want to have nice houses. They want to live in luxury. And, and all that stuff you want, the pathway to it, Solomon is saying, is wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 15, she, wisdom, is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire, nothing you desire can compare with her. Not the treasures, not the pleasures, nothing you desire can compare with her. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths of peace. And this is what I was building to, verse 18. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. If the question is, how do we get back into the Garden of Eden? It's as though Solomon here is saying, wisdom is like the tree of life. If you get wisdom, you will be able to commune with God. If you get wisdom... It will be as though you dwell in the presence of God. Not literally in the Garden of Eden. You live in the fallen world. But as close to Eden as you can get in the fallen world. In anticipation of the realization of the goodness of God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And those who hold her fast are called blessed. And again, that's, that, that, that word blessed at the end of verse 18 is the same word blessed at the beginning of verse 13, and that those two words function like a, a bookend around uh, verses 13 through 18. Um, there's a lot more that we could say about this, but I want to I wanna, I wanna shift now uh, to, to, to look at the way that um, certain themes in the book of Proverbs, and, and there are any number, any number of themes that we could do this with, but I want to do this with child training. And, and I want to I draw attention to the way that the book of Proverbs is so practical and what, it, what, what Solomon has strategically done is he has said different things about different topics and he's he sort of placed these different things about the topics at different points through the book so that as you work your way through, it's almost like if you, if you were to memorize, let's say, everything that he says about child training... And, and then all those statements were to work together, they would form like a web of meaning for you. And they mutually inform and interlace with one another so that as you embrace all of these things, you get a full picture of what he's commending with reference to child training. So um, uh, before, before we start into this, I just want to illustrate this from my own life. Um, I, I mentioned my third-born son. I love that kid. Um, he is, um, I mean, we, my wife and I regularly say um, he should maybe be an attorney because he can argue his case. And, and I, I am inclined and tempted to, to be a softy. I, I, I love that kid so much. I want him to have what he wants. I want, him, I want to give him anything that he's making a, an appeal to, you know, to try to get from me. I want to give it to him. And at the same time, I want to obey the Bible. (laughs) I want to obey the Bible, and I want to teach him righteousness. So um, my son, um, he he has a device, but it is severely locked down. And one of the things that is um, no longer on his device is any access to play music from his device. Because his, his device had become a poison portal it was like he had plugged the device into his ears by means of his AirPods and then just opened up the poison spigot and he was pouring all this filth into his heart. And so we shut it down and we took all the, any access to music off his, off his device. Well, he hates this. He wants music. He wants to listen to music. And so it's like every other day he's asking me, can I have music on my phone? And I just keep telling him, I'm not going to say his name, but I keep telling him... Um, when you've shown me that you have a heart of wisdom, when you've shown me that that your heart has actually changed so that you don't like filth and you like goodness, you can you can we, we can talk about you getting music on your phone and and you know he 's such a such an arguer, 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 such a lawyer that he just keeps coming at me and I just keep having to hold the line. And this is why. Here's, here's why we, we hold the line. Look look with me at the teaching of Proverbs about training your children. Let's start in Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, 24 says, you probably know this verse. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's like Solomon knows how parents are going to think. Parents are going to think, I love my child too much to spank him. I love my child too much to deny him what he wants, whether it's music or you know, whatever it is that he wants access to. I love him too much. And Solomon says, no, you don't love him. You hate him. You hate him. And if you're like, well, what's the logic of that? Well, let's keep reading. So whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now look with me over at chapter 19. And look at 19 verse 18. Same terms. Discipline, son, 19, 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. And, and you think through the logic of this, and, and what he's saying is if you decide, I'm not gonna discipline the child, he's saying, you are setting your heart on putting him to death. And, and if you're like, what in the what? what how, how does that work? Well, y- what you're doing, if you, if you choose not to discipline him, is you're teaching him, you're training him, you're training him that there are no consequences for what he does. You're training him to believe that pain does not result from disobedience. And those who believe such things, those who believe that pain does not result from... They just keep disobeying. And, and, and what Solomon is suggesting is you're, you're putting him on the path to capital punishment. You're putting him on the path to get executed because you're training him that he can get away with wickedness. That's what he's teaching. And, and this is why he says in 13.24... Whoever spares the rod hates his son. You hate him because of the path that you're putting him on and because of the message that you're teaching him. It's counterintuitive. But, but he's, he's telling you, it's, it's like he's saying, I know what you're thinking, but don't set your heart on putting him to death. You see those words there in verse, chapter 19, verse 18? Okay, next one. Look with me at 2215. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Okay, so the heart is where we do our choosing. It's where we do our desiring. It's where we do our thinking. And Solomon says, yeah, children are desi- they're, they're, they're inclined toward foolishness in all those areas. Thinking, choosing, desiring. And the way to drive that folly out of their hearts is, is with the rod of discipline. Look at uh, the next one in 23, 13, and 14. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Now, th- this is one where I think it is clear that Solomon is uh, talking about physical punishment. He is talking about actually um, visiting a, a, a sharp physical pain upon the child. Now, um, the Bible does not advocate for abuse, and, uh, and the Bible does not want anybody ever to abuse the, the Lord does not want anybody ever to abuse a child. Um, I think that, that in cases of abuse, what, what happens is the parents have lost control. The parents are disciplined out of anger and they're frustrated and they explode. And I, I would submit to you for your consideration that if parents are, if they do discipline, and if they are consistent, they won't get to the place where they're ready to explode. They won't get to the place where they're angry if, they're con- if, they, if they discipline on the first infraction. It's like the child uh, transgresses and the, and the rules are stated and the parent says, okay, let's go, let's go receive our consequence and calmly smacks them on the backside. You know, someplace that's not going to leave a mark, it's not going to do damage, not going to bruise, not going to harm in any way, but, but it is going to sting and it is going to communicate, disobedience leads to pain. Um, the parent's going to remain calm. It's only if the parent is like, okay, you disobeyed, don't do that again. And then the kid, you didn't, you didn't enforce it, so the kid disobeys again. And you get a little bit more heated, and you get a little bit more exercised, and you get a little bit more frustrated, and then it keeps happening, and it keeps building, and finally you explode. And what you're teaching the kid is, I don't need to listen to dad or mom until they explode. That's what you're training the kid to know and believe. And and you're also setting yourself up to do something that you're gonna regret. So um, what's being advocated here is a, I think, a measured and loving exercise of corporal punishment that that will not damage anybody. Look at at Proverbs 23:13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So he's saying you're you're actually going to put him on the path to life. Um, The next one, the next one of these statements that's sort of adding to our field of meaning comes in 29.15, complemented by verse 17. So Proverbs 29.15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Look at verse 17. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Um, So now, once once we hit this kind of teaching, then all these other statements in the book of Proverbs start coming in. And all of these other relevant statements that get made, um, like look, look back up at 29.3. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. He who loves wisdom, well, that's a lot like 29.15 and 17. Look at, look at 28.24. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, that is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. The kind of man who would rob his father and mother is the kind of man who was not disciplined as a child. Um, and then you can, you can look at 27, 11: Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. There's this, there's this family in our church, and this brother, he's one, of, he's one of our associate pastors. This brother has been as faithful as anybody else that I've ever seen to discipline his children. And he has the most well-behaved children you will ever find. And, and they, they are so kind. They are so happy. They are so warm. I mean, it's extraordinary. And those kids are like his vindication. Anybody raises a question about this brother? Well, look at Max. Look at Jace. Look at the way that Sierra conducts herself. And everybody's like, you know, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's exactly what, be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. That's what, that's what trained children do. And that brings me to Proverbs 22 6, this, this uh, verse that maybe you've thought about, maybe been troubled by. And I want to suggest to you that there's some words that are in the translation that, that um, are unhelpful. So the ESV renders this Proverbs 22 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, I think it would be better rendered, train up a child in his way. That's what the text literally says. Train up a child in his way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Here's what I think that means. If you teach the kid when he's small, disobedience results in pain. Even when he's old, he'll know that lesson. And, and it's like you'll put him on a, a righteous path, and he won't depart from that. On the other hand, if you teach him when he's small, you can get away with it. There's no consequence. Nobody's going to uphold the standard. Nobody's going to enforce the penalty. Even when he's old, he'll think he can get away with it. I think that's what the verse is saying. And I want to give you an, an illustration. Uh, my father-in-law is an unbeliever. But he's a man of integrity. And he's a man of integrity because his parents taught him disobedience results in pain. So this may seem like a really simple, really small illustration, but um, years ago, the first time I ever went um, with my wife to her parents' home for Christmas vacation, her brother was flying in from Colorado and he had this huge German Shepherd, massive dog. And um, my, my parents-in-law are living in Houston and they're living in this condo. and. Um, Uh, We pull into the parking garage, and my mother-in-law says, we'll just go up the back stairs. We don't need to tell the people at the front desk about the dog. My father-in-law says, no. I mean, he's an unbeliever. He's got no reason to conduct himself this way, ultimately. you know, He doesn't believe in God. He says, no, we will go to the front desk. We will sign the dog in. If there's a fee, we'll pay the fee. If there's a fine, we'll pay the fine. He's a grown man. His parents taught him this when he was a child. And even when he's old, he has not departed from it. Even though he's got no philosophical or theological foundation in which it's ultimately rooted. So um, uh, Proverbs is giving us wisdom for life. and, And ultimately Proverbs is prompting us, pushing us to yearn for the righteous king. Let me invite you to look as we close. I'm almost I'm practically out of time, but let me invite you to look at the end of near the end in Proverbs chapter 30, um, and let's start reading in verses four, in verses four and five. Near the end of the book, this question is asked Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? And if you're a believer in the Old Testament, you know there's only one figure that we can describe this way. Who has, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And by this time, you know, somebody that believes the Old Testament knows, well, that's the Lord. The next question, what is his name? That's the, this is worded exactly the same way as the question is worded in Exodus 3 when the Lord says to Moses, go get my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, they will say to me, what is his name? So this is like a little cue We're talking about the Lord. And then look at the next question. And what is his son's name? It's almost like the book is saying, we need a righteous king. We need the son of God to be our righteous king. And if you remember, um, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he says to Nicodemus, If we think about Proverbs 30, verse 4, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven and come down. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, you remember the king that Proverbs is poking you to want, prodding you to want? You remember the question at the end of Proverbs, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Nicodemus, the one who has ascended to heaven and come down is the Son of Man. And, and, and it's just a, it's a glorious conversation, and I think it's an allusion to really the, the heart of the meaning of the book of Proverbs, that to live this way is to follow Jesus. Jesus is the one who embodies and lives out the teaching of Proverbs, and as we seek to embrace this message and live it out for ourselves, we're trying to follow him. Let me conclude us with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clear teaching. Thank you for the path to life, for the way to get back into the into your presence, into the new and better garden of Eden. Lord, cause our hearts to long for Jesus, to hope for him, cause us to be those who hold the line and who raise up children who give us rest. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be enticed by by wisdom, cause us to be uh, provoked to recognize that the The understanding of the scriptures is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Lord, we ask that you'd bless everything that we do today, that you'd smile upon us. I pray that you'd bless these, your people, in Christ's name. Amen.